Well, happy Easter, everybody. My name is Scott Rains. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to say a great big welcome to you this Easter morning, especially to those of you who are worshiping out in our overflow areas or downstairs in the harbor where I promise you we are working on getting the air conditioning working for you down there. Please don't think this is God punishing you for being late to Easter. That's not good theology. Oh, anyway, a couple of weeks ago, I went to the Ankeny Historical Museum for a presentation because you know, that's what all the cool kids do. Uh, the presentation was given by Ober Anderson, and Ober happens to be a member here at Hope. Ober loves Iowa, particularly the farms of Iowa. Spent 35 years working for the Iowa State Ag Extension Service, and then several years as a farm appraisal. I did over 500 farm appraisals, in the process fell in love with the Iowa barn, or what he calls cathedrals on the prairie. And as Ober was speaking, I found my mind kind of wandering. Has that ever happened to you? I mean, not at church, but other places when someone's talking, your mind maybe wanders. Anyway, my, my mind wandered to childhood. I grew up on a farm, and my brothers and I spent a lot of time in barns, maybe looking for supplies so we could build a treehouse and sneaking the supplies out of there without telling Dad or Uncle Rich or, you know, that sort of thing. Or maybe it was baling hay at Ed Perry's farm. Any of you have to bale hay? I mean, have to. Get the honor, the privilege of baling hay on 100-degree days in the Iowa summer. And you look at the seasoned, the wise old farmers wearing long-sleeve shirts, and you think, what kind of dummy wears a long-sleeve shirt in July? And by the end of the day, you understand why your arms are all cut up. and that's. But it's worth it because Gene Perry would make ham salad sandwiches for our lunch break. Ham salad, plate after plate after plate of ham salad sandwiches and ice cold lemonade. I'm not sure I've ever had a ham salad sandwich except for when I was bailing hay there. If you don't have your Easter menu yet, there you go. Just ham salad sandwiches and lemonade and you're good to go. Maybe not. Anyway, at the end of the presentation, Ober was talking about historically there were over 200,000 barns in Iowa. And now the, we're losing them at a rate of about 1,000 barns every year. And so he's part of an organization that is at work trying to restore as many of these barns as they can. Barns that get old and worn down and broken and damaged for all kinds of reasons. This group of people wants to find ways to restore them. And as Ober was talking about this word, this idea, restore, it just kind of stuck in my spirit. Restoration. It's a real biblical idea. Read this verse with me. Wherever you are, find a screen close to you. Let's read this out loud together. You will be rebuilt. I will restore all your ruins. You will be rebuilt. I'll restore all your ruins. The world watched in kind of stunned amazement earlier this week as a cathedral, Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, caught on fire and burned and burned. They think they were able to salvage enough of it that they might be able to rebuild it. They might be able to restore it. But there's still tremendous sadness around it because everybody knows it'll never be the same. You won't be able to restore it to its original glory. A month ago, I was in the Holy Land with a group of people. First time I'd ever had the opportunity to visit the Holy Land. If you ever go to the Holy Land, which I would highly recommend if you get the chance, one of the things you can expect to see is a whole lot of ruins. From Caesarea to Scytopolis to Masada, archaeologists have uncovered the ruins of villages, palaces, fortresses that are thousands of years old. I mean, if we find a barn in Iowa that's 100 years old, we're impressed, and we should be. It's hard for us, though, to even comprehend something that's thousands of years old. Uh, this verse in Isaiah 44 is talking about the city of Jerusalem, in particular the wall and the temple. 
in Jerusalem. In the year 586, 586 years before Jesus, the Babylonians conquer Jerusalem. They carry the people of Jerusalem off as exiles into captivity, and they leave the city lying in ruins. And so God gives this prophecy to Isaiah, this promise that one day their home, their city, will be rebuilt. And it happens. Through the leadership of Nehemiah, they rebuild the wall, and through the leadership of Ezra, they rebuild the temple. But one of the interesting things as you read through Ezra's account, this is the people who were old enough, who grew up in Jerusalem, then were carried away into captivity, and now they're back, they're old enough to remember the first temple. As the temple's being restored and rebuilt, they start weeping. And they're not weeping for joy, they're weeping because it's just a shadow of its former self. And they're understanding in a very profound way in that moment, it'll never be the same again. One of the themes of scripture is this idea that God's in the restoration business. Maybe it's walls, maybe it's cities, but even more importantly than that, God is interested in rebuilding the ruins of a life. And so I want to read this verse to you one more time. This time, imagine hearing God speak these words to you. You will be rebuilt. You will be rebuilt. God will restore all your ruins. We moved to Ankeny in 2006. We lived on Ordnance Road, basically across the street from TNT Landscape. And our next door neighbor were Connie and Duke. And Connie and Duke, great neighbors. Uh, Connie had an in-home daycare, and so her backyard was just an awesome place to play. Our kids spent a lot of time playing in Duke and Connie's backyard. Uh, we moved in 2011 to a different side of town, and they've since moved to a, a different spot in Ankeny. And we keep up with each other on Facebook. You know, how are the kids growing up? Can't believe they're so old, you know, that sort of thing. Two weeks ago tomorrow, on April 8th, Duke was in his truck. He was driving to Des Moines, and something blew out of the back of his truck. He pulled to the side of the interstate, went to get it off the road, and was hit by a car and died. Just like that. Two weeks ago, Eli, our discipleship minister, had to officiate a funeral for a 55-year-old man relatively new to our congregation. No signs of any kind of health issues, had a heart attack and died suddenly, just like that. A week ago, I did a funeral for a 53-year-old man. He was at his son's baseball practice, 14-year-old son, collapsed at the practice field, ruptured aorta, died, just like that. On Friday, I was in this room with a bunch of people mourning the death of a 33-year-old woman. A week ago, she had an aneurysm, and so the following day, her little brother had to tell his little girls that their aunt had died. Last Sunday, Palm Sunday, we'd finished all of our services. I was cleaning up my desk and getting ready to head home for a quick lunch with my family before coming back here for the funeral of that 53-year-old. And on my way out in the hall, I met a man and his five- or six-year-old son. The man said it was their first time at Hope. I said, we're so glad you're here. How'd you find out about us? He said, well, we live pretty close by. But uh, the reason we showed up today, six months ago, our 16-year-old son died. And in the days since his death, this five- or six-year-old son has begun to kind of act out Bible stories, pretending like he's Jesus speaking to the multitudes, pretending like he's Jesus healing people who are sick. And the dad's like, this little guy is trying to connect the dots, trying to put the pieces together, trying to somehow make sense of his big brother's death. 
About that time, Kyle Rex, who just sang You Raise Me Up, our worship and arts director here at Hope Ankeny, Kyle was in the worship center rehearsing a song he was going to sing at the funeral later that afternoon. And as the words and the music from that song made their way out of this room and down the hall to where I was having that conversation with this grieving father, as he hears it, he begins to sob just like that. Because life happens. And death happens. And so many times, in so many ways, we can find ourselves standing in the ruins of our life. Maybe it's because of the death of someone we love, but maybe it's some other kind of brokenness, some other kind of hurt, some other kind of damage that just has us feeling like... And when somebody starts talking about, hey, what about rebuilding? What about restoration? We can find ourselves shaking our head, shrugging our shoulders. Why, why even bother? It's not worth the effort. Nothing will ever be the same again. That's where Mary finds herself that first Easter Sunday. Jesus has been killed and she's watched as they've taken his dead body and put it in the tomb and sealed the tomb. Here's how John chapter 20 begins. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. Part of what I hope you hear there is this interesting reality that for Mary, she gets there, she discovers the tomb is empty, but the empty tomb is not good news for her. The empty tomb was confusing and and troublesome and bothersome and just awful. They've taken his body, and we don't know where they've put him. What's going on? What are they doing? How can they make things even worse? So she stands outside the tomb crying, devastated, hopeless, empty. Jesus is dead. Everything is ruined. Nothing will be the same again. So I told you earlier I went to the Holy Land about a month ago, and we were with a group of 30 people, uh, about half of them worship here at Hope on a regular basis. I sat down with them and asked them to just kind of talk about their experience. And one of the things they all mentioned was the experience of walking the Via Della Rosa, the way of sorrow, the way of grief. When Jesus is condemned to die, they make him carry the cross to the place of his execution. And historically in the church, there's something called the Stations of the Cross that kind of mark different things that happen along that path. And so it's to help you kind of prayerfully reflect on this sacrifice that Jesus makes for us. In Jerusalem, you can actually walk the Via Della Rosa, and you can stop at each of these stations of the cross. The final three or four of them all are inside a church called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And so I want you to watch as these hopesters describe their experience. Take a look. Much of my life is three-dimensional, so it was really fun to get into that three-dimensional part of Jesus' life and to be able to walk through some of those same types of spaces that I'm sure that he experienced. It made the Bible come to life for me. It kind of consumed me those two weeks we were there actually being in those physical locations. It just made it more real. 
you know, the way our trip went, we ended in Jerusalem, essentially. We spent time, you know, walking where Jesus walked, walking the, the 14 stations of the cross. I can imagine when I walked down the streets of the old city with all of the vendors there. It's not like our farmer's market. Walking down the Via Della Rosa to each one of the stations where something happened with Jesus. You didn't just walk down and go, there's one, two, three. We had to really search for them. And when I got to the station where um, Jesus saw his mother, that really touched me. Thinking about my own child, who was about that age, having to go through this and to watch that, I just, I felt so moved by the whole experience and what he did for us. What was it like? What were people just watching this happen? Were they really understanding their consequences, you know, the consequences of what he was doing for us? His, his the ultimate sacrifice, do they really understand? Well, for me, people can tell me things and then I, you know, I more or less believe it. And then when a second pe person tells me something, then I believe it a little more. But for me, when I actually experience something myself, then it's much more powerful for me. People would wait an hour in line to put their hand in the hole where the cross was at. A three hour wait to see the tomb. These people are seeking, hopefully seeking God and to fill their soul, to fill their emptiness. Humans are gonna disappoint you all the time. Jesus will never disappoint you. I just want more. I just, I'm craving more to hear. I want to hear the end of the story or the rest of the story. We got snippets of the stories, but I want the whole story now. It wasn't just a story in a book anymore. It was real. It was really real. It's not going to be all about the food or the feast that we're going to make. It's not going to be about the Easter egg hunt and the Easter baskets. It's going to be about the story, and it wasn't a story, it really happened, and I saw the streets that it really happened on, and that's where it's gonna be for me, is what he did for us, he saved us. So it seems like the way it works in the Holy Land is anytime they find a place that's uh, meaningful, has sort of biblical connections, they build a church on top of it to commemorate it, and that's what the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is. Here's the entrance to the church, and it's built on top of two pretty important spots in Christianity. The place where they believe Jesus was crucified on Golgotha. Remember, he's crucified on a hill, Calvary sometimes it's called. It's a rock formation that looked like a skull. And then to the left, that's to the right, to the left is where they bury him. 
So you go inside, the first thing you do is you turn right, and there's a, a series of stairs that are kind of slippery and narrow and a little bit scary because it's a very different cultural reality, and people are actually pushing and shoving and trying to budge in front of you in line to get to this place where Jesus is crucified. And they've built a, an altar over the spot. On either side of it, there's kind of plexiglass, and you can look down at the actual original bedrock of that uh, hill of the skull. And then when it's your turn, you humble yourself at the foot of the cross. You have to kneel and kind of crawl underneath that altar so that you can put your hand in the hole that they carve out of the rock and they place the cross where Jesus is crucified. And as I'm kneeling there in that moment, all I can think is thank you. Thank you for this sacrifice. Thank you for your love for me, for my family, for my friends, for this world that you love so much. You leave that place, you go back down another series of stairs, you go back in front of the entrance to the church. The first thing you see when you walk into the church is actually kind of a rectangular uh, stone kind of rock formation, and that's where they believe they laid the body of Jesus when they brought him off the cross to prepare him for burial. And then you make your way clear to the left of the church, and that's where you see the sepulcher, the tomb. Uh, sepulcher is just a fancy word that means tomb. So it's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. A couple of things I want you to think about. So the two primary holidays that we celebrate as Christians, Christmas and Easter. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. At Easter, what do we celebrate? The resurrection of Jesus. So you go to the Holy Land and you visit all these places. You go to Bethlehem and you visit the church they build on the spot where they believe Jesus is born. You go to Nazareth, you visit the church that's built on the spot where they believe Jesus grew up with Joseph and Mary. You go to the Garden of Gethsemane. You visit the church they build on the spot where Jesus prays the night that he is arrested. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. You go to Jerusalem, you walk the Via Della Rosa, you go to the Stations of the Cross, and at each station they've built a chapel or, or a little church to commemorate it, and you end up here at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the place where Jesus is crucified and the place where his dead body is buried, the Church of the Holy Tomb. You know what you can't visit when you go to the Holy Land? You cannot go to the Church of the Resurrection. I mean, you can. If you end up at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, by definition, by default, this tomb where they bury the body of Jesus three days later becomes the empty tomb. It's the spot where Jesus is resurrected. My question is, why don't we call it that? Why don't we call it the Church of the Resurrection? And, and part of the reason is because there's a mindset we have as human beings that makes this really difficult to believe. But what Christianity teaches, here's the mindset to go through life with. The place of death is also the place of resurrection. The place of death, the place of destruction, the place of damage, the place of hurt, the place of ruin, it's also the place of resurrection. But it's so difficult for us to believe that. That's why Mary stands out the tomb crying. She doesn't believe resurrection is possible from the ruins of her life. She knows, she understands, she believes just like you and I. Death is the end. This is it. It's never going to be better again. And so, and so in Luke's account of the Easter story, there's a really important sentence that one of the angels speaks. We'll put it on the screen. And again, wherever you are right now, let's read this out loud together. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Let's all say that together one more time. Why do you look for the living among the dead? It's a question for us just as much as it was a question for people back on that first Easter morning. Why do we as human beings give in to this temptation time and time again in our lives to try to fill our lives with things that actually 
rob us of life. So as I was driving home last Sunday uh, from church, my cell phone started going crazy. And Tiger Woods had just about hit a hole-in-one on the par 3 16th. He missed a hole-in-one by about six inches. He ended up making the putt. He had a two-shot lead with two holes to play in the Masters. And the sports world was going crazy. And of course, uh, the Tiger Woods story is really more than a sports story. Won his first Masters in 1997. Became the youngest golfer ever to win the Masters. And there's this iconic photograph of Tiger Woods walking off the 18th green after this victory, hugging his father, uh, celebrating that victory. In the next 11 years, from 1997 to 2008, he would win 14 majors. The record is 18, and everyone thought he's just going to blow right past that. But all of a sudden, it came crashing down very suddenly and very surprisingly. If you like reading interesting articles... Uh, this one's a really long one, but I think it's just fascinating. It was written three years ago in April of 2019 for ESPN, the magazine. Wright Thompson is the author. It's called The Secret History of Tiger Woods. And in this article, he kind of connects the dots between Tiger's grief over the death of his father and a path of destruction that Tiger started walking down. Led to multiple affairs, led to a very public uh, divorce, it led to this sort of humiliating uh, addiction to painkillers, it, it led to an obsession with the kind of physical training that Navy SEALs go through. And Tiger started doing that, and it just damaged his body so much so he wasn't able to swing a golf club for a while. And he thought, a couple of years ago, he thought, might not be able to actually walk again. In the middle of the article, Wright Thompson asks a pretty powerful question. How did all he'd built come undone so quickly and so completely? How did this global empire that Tiger had built, how did it come undone so quickly and so completely? I mean, in a very real way, Tiger's life was in ruins. Sure, he still had more money than he'd ever be able to spend in a lifetime. But what about his reputation? What about his relationships, the relationships that really matter? They were in need of some major restoration, and everybody knew, everybody believed, everybody was happy to tell you, Tiger Woods will never be the same again. What about you? What about your life? When's the last time you took just a real honest evaluation of your life? What are you building? We're all building something. And hopefully you're building a life of satisfaction and contentment and lasting joy, but the reality is, so many times, we get tricked, we get tempted, and we buy into it when we go looking for the living among the dead, trying to build our lives, trying to fill our lives with things that do not last, things that disappoint us, things that let us down and leave us feeling empty and often alone. Jesus has something to say about this. I love this movie. It's a claymation adaptation of the life of Jesus. And so this is for you, kids. Claymation and cartoon, but I want us all to watch this because... Here's Jesus talking about the importance of building your life on the right kind of foundation. Take a look. I don't understand. Joseph died and he left you a good set of tools, hmm? a workshop, custom, and contact in the big cities. Lazarus, I have new work to do. Is that what you mean by the kingdom? Yes, the kingdom of God. I mean, last time you came, you were just fixing the door. Oh, is the door still opening smoothly? <laughs> oh, but I still don't... Jesus, don't you care that my sister has left me to do everything? Tell her to help me. Martha. Martha. 
You're always hurrying around, so worried. You do so much for everyone else, but don't miss the one thing that matters for you. Sit with us and listen. Well, I, I can still mend doors, but I'm building something new now. God's kingdom. On earth, as it is in heaven. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Your Father in heaven longs to give you all good gifts. Our Father in heaven? This man is different from other rabbis. You mean he preaches his own message rather than God's? No, he says things in a new way. There's no harm in listening. Look at that. Come to me. Come and listen to me. Come to me. Mother! Come on, Tamar. I should never have brought you into the fields today. It's him! The carpenter in Sepphoris! Come to me and listen and act on my words. If you do that, then you're like a very wise man who built his house upon a rock. But anyone who listens to what I say and does nothing about it is, is like a stupid man who built his house upon the sand. <laughs> Build your life like you build a house on deep foundations. Don't just take the easy way, take the hard way. Listen to my words. Let them go deeper and deeper. Open your hearts and minds to the truth. Be ready for the day when trouble comes, when difficulties arise and terrible storms rage all around you. So it's Easter Sunday, and that's a day when a lot of people maybe show up at Hope for the first time or for the first time in a long time. And if that's you, we just want to say we're so glad that you joined us today. We built this place for people like you, because people like you are actually people like us, people with questions, people with doubts, people with real hurts, people living busy lives, trying to make the most of it. And yet deep down inside us, we know that there's a God who says there's something more. And so we're glad you're here, and we want to invite you to keep coming back. We want to invite you to be a part of what God's building here. He's always building something new. It's called the kingdom of God. He's building it among us, and we want to, as best we can, seek first that kingdom. We are far from perfect. We mess up time and time again, but each time we do, Jesus is there to raise us up and dust us off and say, let's try it again tomorrow. We continue to pray that God will build something new here part of the reason why we're in the middle of a project, a campaign called Building to a Hope Beyond. We want to make more room for more people so you don't have to stand outside waiting in line to get into church for uh, Easter service. It's actually fine for Easter service. Christmas Eve, people complain a little more if we make them stand outside uh, waiting to come in. Anyway, primarily what we want is more room for youth and family ministry. 
We have hundreds of kids coming into this place every week, children and students, and we want to do everything we can to help them build their life on the rock. That's why this summer we're having a whole week for Vacation Bible School where we're going to invite thousands of kids to come. Built for God is our theme. I don't know if you've ever seen these toys, and they're kind of this interesting shape so that you can kind of stick them together and build things with them. I can't say what they're called or we'll get sued, but Built for God... Built for God is our theme, July 22nd to the 26th, and we want you to volunteer, and we want your kids to come, and your grandkids to come, and all of their friends to come for a week-long Jesus party, joining in this construction process that Jesus is doing right now among us. It's why for the last 40 days during the season of Lent, we had a mission project, Hope Lives Here. You heard about it in the Hope 360 partnering with Habitat for Humanity to restore and to rebuild a neighborhood near downtown Des Moines so that they will know that there is a God who loves them. Jesus says wise people build their life on the rock. And of course we all want to be wise. But we also have to confess, don't we, that sometimes we're pretty foolish and it can leave our lives in ruins. A golf tournament, four days long, 18 holes every day, The third day of the Masters, Saturday at the Masters, is called Moving Day. And so I'm watching that tournament on Saturday. I'm watching as Tiger moves closer and closer to the top of the leaderboard. And my friends and I are texting each other back and forth. One of them asks, who do you think is going to win? And one of my friends had an interesting reply. He said, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why, but I find myself pulling for Tiger. I'm not sure why, but I find myself pulling for Tiger. I, I heard that sentiment all over sports talk radio. I heard it at church last Sunday as I'm talking with some people. I'm not sure why, but I find myself pulling for Tiger. There's all kinds of reasons and layers behind a statement like that. But part of what is being said is we know what Tiger's done. We know the bad things. We know the way he has hurt people. We know that a big part of the collapse was self-inflicted wounds. And so there's a part of us that wonders, is it okay to cheer for a guy that does the kinds of things that Tiger has done? I'm not sure why I find myself pulling for Tiger. We find ourselves pulling for him because we see ourselves in his story. No, we're not famous enough to have the ruins of our life plastered across the tabloids and gossiped about on social media, but we have our own issues, don't we? Hurts that we have caused to the people we love the most, foolish things that we have done looking for the living among the dead. And so there's a part of us that hopes and prays as we watch Tiger try to rebuild his golf career. Maybe, just maybe, that could mean there's hope that a God, that there's a God who could raise me up and restore and rebuild the life of a wretch like me. I talk to so many people who are absolutely convinced they are enemies of God, that they've done too many bad things. They've turned their back on God for too long, rejected God for too long, hurt too many people, made too big a mess of their life. There's no possible way God could want anything to do with me. Nothing could be further from the truth, and that's what Easter tells us. There is no limit to God's love for you. God loves you enough to be born as a human being. Jesus loves you enough to go to the cross and die for you. God loves you enough to raise Jesus from death to life on the third day. This story, the Easter story, is all about trying to help you see God has always been pulling for you. God has always been and will always be pulling for you. Here's how the Apostle Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 5. He writes, since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. At just the right time, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
to restore this relationship that's been damaged and broken. If anybody knows anything about restoring a relationship with Jesus, it's Peter, Peter who denies Jesus three times. One of the first things Jesus does after the resurrection, he goes to Peter to restore this broken relationship. And Peter writes about his experience, but he's also writing it to let us know this can be our experience. Jesus will restore you. Jesus will support you and strengthen you. Jesus will place you on a firm foundation. Jesus can help you build your life on the rock. And we want that, but when we're standing in the ruins of our life, it can feel impossible. We need kind of a spiritual 911 call. If you ever find yourself in that place, here's a good verse to remember. Amos 911. In that day, I will restore the fallen house of David, God says. I will repair its damaged walls. From the ruins, I will rebuild it and restore its former glory. He's talking about the fallen house of David, and sometimes we make the mistake of thinking he's talking about the city of David, the city of Jerusalem and the temple and the wall. The house of David is not a building. The fallen house of David is a people, a family, the family of God. God wants to rebuild us. God wants to restore us to our former glory. What in the world does that mean? God created you on purpose, for a purpose. And too many times throughout the course of our life, we start going our own direction, our own path, and we become something, someone other than who God created us to be. God wants to help us become who God created us to be, restoring our former glory. So I'm watching the Masters. I got home just in time to see Tiger walk up the fairway of the final hole, make the putt. The crowd goes wild. He wins a major for the first time in 11 years. And the whole time I'm watching it, all I can think about is Easter. So I want you to watch how this unfolds, but watch it through the lens of the Easter story. Take a look. Many doubted we'd ever see it, but here it is. The return to glory. seems pretty excited, doesn't he? And rightly so. He walks off of that green and he embraces his son in the same spot that 22 years earlier his father embraced him. It was a hug that symbolized the comeback is complete and the whole time I'm watching it, I'm thinking about Easter. The writer of Hebrews says, since we are surrounded by such a great crowd of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. Can you imagine what that must have been like? Can you imagine God the Father, arms open wide, scooping down to hug, to embrace his son, Jesus Christ, to raise him up, to look him in the eyes and to say, we did it. Stones rolled away. Tomb's empty. Comeback's complete. We're making all things new. Can you imagine the celebration? People, I know you're Lutherans, but my goodness, it's Easter. Isn't that good news? When Tiger Woods, when Tiger Woods is on the prowl looking to win a golf tournament and the crowd goes wild, they call it a tiger roar. You know what they call Jesus? The lion of the tribe of Judah. And the writer of Revelation says he's won a victory for us that's better than any golf tournament, better than any national championship, better than anything you might ever hope to win. It's a victory over sin, a victory over death, and it's a victory that's really good news for you and for me. Because just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we too can live new lives. New lives, people. New lives. Not, hey, let's fix it up a little bit over here or remodel a little and restore. No, brand new lives. New and everlasting life. Best life possible on this earth before we die. Life that never ends after our death. That's the victory that the roaring lion won for us. That's the victory of Easter. And I think it's worth celebrating. He is risen. Let's all stand together and let's sing about this victory.